So really quickly, I'm going to give you the 60-second rundown of our starting point series so far, because this is the last one around the fact that most of us as children are handed some sort of framework for our faith. Yet, when we become adults, or maybe older teenagers, it doesn't really mesh with what we face in the real world sometimes. Um, you know, and even though it doesn't work, and even though what maybe parents or a priest or a rabbi or a pastor or whatever, whoever it was told us about who God was, maybe it just doesn't really work with the real world, and we don't want to abandon our faith, so we just kind of go into adulthood. Sort of an idea that maybe it's real, maybe it's not, but we've got a job to get through, we've got to go to school, we've got to raise kids, all that sort of stuff, and so we just don't have time to really think about it. And then maybe for some of you, you're too honest to do that, and you brought all those childhood stories about God and faith, and you know, God is good, and red and yellow, black and white, and precious in our sight, and maybe deep and wide, and whatever songs we sang, and... You brought it front and center, you held it up, and you measured it against your experience as a teenager and an adult, and you go, I don't know, it just doesn't really work anymore. I don't know if I believe that. I'm not trying to be critical of my pastor or my parents, but it just doesn't seem to work anymore. And maybe you're polite at Christmas, maybe you attend church once or twice a year, but it doesn't really have anything to do with your daily life. Because... Maybe you walked away from that. The framework just doesn't really sit and survive well with the rigors of adulthood. I'm sure we all have family. I've asked this question in this series. What would it be like to start over? What would it be like starting fresh as an adult, as a teenager, older teenager, if we were seeking and exploring faith and asking questions about faith, what would it look like? And this entire series has been about asking those questions that maybe as children we didn't get to resolve. So, here's what we've talked about so far really quickly. We said that if you're going to consider embracing Christianity, the most important question, in fact, the number one question, the starting point for all Christianity is, who is Jesus? So we talked a bit about that. You know, it's not, were there dinosaurs on the ark? It's not, uh, was there really an Adam and Eve? And were they really naked? Because, you know, that kind of holds interest for a little while. Those are fascinating questions, but it's not the real one. And if you're considering a faith around God, the real one is, who is Jesus? Then in the second week, we talked about coming to terms with sin. We looked at the fact that we all make mistakes, but sin's a bit deeper than that. Then we talked about the fact that if you're going to embrace faith... Somehow, maybe, we feel like we've got to get God to like us. Maybe that's how we feel. Maybe you've got to get God to love you or put up with you. And maybe we need just a clean slate. Then we talked about the role of rules. You know, Christianity seems to be about all these rules. Is it that you've... Is it a bit like family, where you get given the rules after you join in the family? Or do you get given the rules before you join the club. Then we asked a bigger question, who can wash away our sin? And we said, you know what? We all know how to say sorry and maybe move forward, but what do you do about the past and how do you forgive yourself? Then we talked about grace 
And does it seem like maybe you're just getting by with doing stuff and then trying to get the forgiveness later? Do we focus on the relationship or the action? And so this week we're going to tie all that together and hopefully provide a real starting point for our faith, for why we believe in Jesus. For most of us, our faith starting point started when we were children. Somebody said, here, believe this. So we did, you know, maybe daddy said, maybe mummy said, maybe rabbi or pastor or priest said, here is what we believe, and we did. And that's fine. I did the same with my kids. Didn't just throw a book of world religions on the table, say, pick one, kids. No, we said, this is what we believe. And it's good to do that. I remember in my childhood, my teenage years particularly, I spent as much time in Sabbath school classes and by myself learning facts as much as I could about the Bible. In fact, I learned things like the longest name in the Bible. Does anyone know it? <laughs> it's Meher Shalal Hashbaz, by the way. Um, and I learned all sorts of facts of all sorts of names, all sorts of places. In fact, one of my favorite things to do on a Sabbath afternoon, you know, because we couldn't do much because of those rules, was playing Bible Scramble, sort of like a Bible version of someone wanted to play with me, with friends or family, because I could remember all the answers to every question in the game. So no one would want to play. You know, and Heidi often says I know too many useless facts. But what I didn't really develop was my relationship with Jesus. I knew a lot about him, but I didn't really turn that head knowledge into heart knowledge. You know, and then we become adults. And for some of us, there's a gap between maybe what we're taught as children and what we experience as adults. And we react to that gap in different ways. For some of us, we hold on to that childlike faith. And when someone says, hey, look over there, look at what that is like, how does that mesh with what you know is from your childhood faith? You go, no, nah, no, nah, I don't want to look that way. I just want to be ignorant. I don't want to know because that's going to challenge and confront what I believe. And maybe for others, you look at the world and you think, you know what? What I experienced doesn't match up with what I got taught. And so... There's this gap. We want to know if there's a God. We want to know if what we've been taught is true. Even if we don't do anything with it, maybe we just want to know. So, faith is perhaps the most confused and misused and abused concept in religion. So we need to start, you know, if we look at faith, and I could throw, most of you probably know Hebrews 11, and we talk about it all the time. Faith is the evidence of, can you complete it? Some can, I'm hearing it. We, we know it, right? We talk about it. Faith is the evidence of things unseen. Yet, what does it mean? So what I want to do is step back and look at the broader context of this word, and I'm going to use faith and belief interchangeably because they're kind of the same thing. There's nothing magic or different when we use the word faith. It's not a religious word. It's just a word. They're not even religious terms, belief or faith. 
they're used within the context of religion, but sometimes they get pulled out as something really mystical, something really unique. You know, somebody says, you've just got to believe, you've just got to have faith. Sometimes it just sounds like a slick car salesman or TV faith healer trying to sell you something. And you're not sure how it actually applies. So what I want to do is take the mystery out of this because it shouldn't be mysterious. Faith is just faith. You express it all the time. Belief is just belief. So I'm not going to talk about religious faith until right near the end. But I want to paint a picture of what is belief and how does that work within religion. Because if you're going to start your faith over, if you're going to reset, you need to understand how they work together. And there are three general observations about faith or belief. Number one, the ability to believe is one of the most powerful forces at mankind's disposal. Now, when I say the most powerful force, everything that's ever been accomplished by human beings in the history of humanity was accomplished because somebody believed it could be and that it should be. Everything begins as an idea. Everything begins as a belief. And we have this ability to lean forward in our brains, to be able to, you know, have words come out of our mouths and things start to happen and the world changes around us. Every problem that's ever been solved by anyone was solved because somebody believed it could be and it should be. And because they started to talk about it, other people believed they believed and then they shared it with others and pretty soon the world begins to change. Jesus talked about how you can move a mountain with faith. And, you know, sometimes we get all a bit geeked out by that. Is it literal? Did he really mean if I have enough faith I can move a mountain? I've never moved a mountain. Have any of you? Yet, we've seen all kinds of mountains moved by faith if you actually think about it. Medical mountains, cures for diseases, childhood diseases that don't even exist anymore because somebody said, this should be gone. It should be eradicated. It shouldn't be around anymore. So they talked about it. They raised money, spent money. They researched, investigated, and now some of those diseases don't exist. When they crop up once in a while around the world, somebody knows what to do because somebody believed that it should be addressed. Think of educational mountains. Think of racial mountains. Think of the mountain of slavery, civil rights. We can go on and on and on. All around the world, at different places, we see incredible mountains that have been moved because somebody said, I believe it can be. Belief is powerful. The power to unite around belief is huge. Yet it's just ideas and words most of the time. It's the most powerful thing the, race has ever, the human race has ever been given. It's behind every good thing we've done. It's behind every bad thing we've done. It's like a weapon. Whatever direction you point it, something's going to happen. Ideologies are basically a belief system. And they drive world events. Look at our country. We're divided by ideologies and beliefs. You know, I believe the economy is stronger if we do this. Or, I believe the economy is stronger if we do that. Well, I believe we should have daylight saving in Queensland. 
Or no, let's split the state because of daylight saving. Or we should be a republic, not a a monarchy, commonwealth, monarchy. Our nation is divided over ideas. Think about World War I and II. People talked, people believed, and we went to war with each other. Ten million military deaths, seven million civilian deaths, over 21 million wounded from World War I because of an idea. In World War II, over 60 million died because of an idea, because of someone who believed about something. You look at every conflict around every nation around the world, people see things differently, they gather in their little communities of shared belief, and some things start to happen, whether it's good or bad. Now, this is a bit simplistic. Most of you have studied probably a little bit of history, so you're smart, you understand. But think of World War II. Adolf Hitler drags the world into World War simply by talking. It's pretty much all he did. Germany was having a tough time. He talked about what they were all experiencing. He put his little spin on it, and he said, this is what could be and should be for the people of Germany. Here's what could be and should be for the people of Germany. And slowly, people began to believe. Then all the surrounding nations had to make a decision. What do we believe about this man? A couple of years later, the world's at war. And all he did was really talk. That's the power of an idea, the power of belief, the power of somebody who has a persuasive communication skill gets up, rallies people around their ideas. And the ability to believe in something is the most powerful thing we have. When we believe in something possible, we look for a way to find it until we get there. Isn't that what we do? You know, you've probably all heard of a few of these situations arising in companies, in tech companies particularly. They'll hire a brand new employee and they'll give them a task that's impossible. Everybody in the company knows it's impossible. There are maybe two or three famous examples of this. And they give them a task. It's like an initiation to the company. And they say, welcome here. We want you to work on this project, solve this problem. Everybody knows they can't. Problem's unsolvable. But what happens every once in a while? Somebody does solve it. And they'll come back and say, I solved it. And everybody says, no, 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 it's impossible. Well, no, you believed it was impossible, so you didn't. You quit trying. But nobody told me it was impossible, so I solved it. That's the power of belief. Optimists always outsell less smarter, less optimistic peers. Study after study proves this and shows this. You want to hire a great salesperson? Don't hire the brightest. Hire the optimist every single time. They outsell their brighter, less optimistic colleagues, and it's because if you believe you can, you eventually will. You've probably heard that seeing is believing. Well, the truth is, we've all experienced this, believing is also seeing. You believe something long enough, it will come true. Belief trumps IQ every single time. It's the most powerful thing. Not religious belief, just belief. 
with all those different categories thrown in. Belief empowers us to try, fail, try again, to hope, to anticipate, to imagine, to create. goes on and on. The power of belief. The second sort of observation before we start looking at religion is that we constantly look for evidence to support what we believe to be true. We all do this, whether it's unconscious or not. We are constantly on the lookout for evidence to support what we believe to be true. And I think this is particularly true of labour and climate change proponents, or maybe liberal and climate deniers, or teals or independents, throw any political party you like it in there. I'm not getting political. Everybody does this. We watch something on television and we go, see there, honey, I told you. I told you. You can't. You know, that they're telling the truth. And then somebody else comes on a different channel and you go, you can't trust them. Turn that off. We don't watch that t channel, that TV station. We don't listen to them. You ever done that? Heard that done? Of course, we constantly look for things to support what we already believe. It's just how belief works. We filter out anything to the contrary. This is one of the things that makes a belief really powerful, but also really dangerous. It's what makes it extraordinary and misleading, because as soon as you embrace a belief system, whether it's about religion, whether it's about family, whether it's about business, whether it's about how to raise your kids, Whatever that belief system is, once you embrace it, you believe it's the best way, you automatically begin looking for things that support your belief. And you filter out things that don't. Everybody's guilty of that. But it's not really guilt, it's just the way belief works. The third general observation is that belief is easy to maintain within a community of shared beliefs. This explains a lot, because belief is easy to maintain within a community, and here's why. A community of shared belief allows information in to support what you believe, and not only are you filtering out information that is contrary to what you believe, you're surrounded by a community of people that also allows only the right information in and filters out the wrong information. And you might get to a point where you go, ha, huh, I don't know what if I'm believing is true or not. And then your 14 other community believers come in and say, no, 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 we're right and here's why. And you're like, oh yeah, that's right, I remember that now. And you filter out what you don't believe. This is why there's so many different religions. It's why there's so many factions of Christians. It's why there's so many denominations. Because once you get in a community where you have shared belief, the community supports that belief system. So how does religious belief or religious faith compare with just a secular, observable, and repeatable in terms of belief in the world? There's nothing unique about religious belief. It's just belief of a religious nature. But it can split families, it can split worlds, it can bring nations together, it can create problems, solve problems. Belief is really powerful. Ancient Jews believed that Abraham was called from God to go to a new place. They believed that God promised Abraham he'd be a nation. 
They'd have their own land. And many Jews believe that today. That's religious belief. If you get enough people together that believe the same thing, they filter out, they filter in, there's a movement. Muslims believe that the angel Gabriel spoke to the prophet Muhammad in a cave. And the prophet who would be, well, Muhammad became that prophet, believed that angel Gabriel gave him these revelations. His family believed that they were true. They wrote them down. Before long, people in other places like Mecca and Medina believed the same things. And before you know it, Islam and the Quran are launched. People believed that it embodied, it encapsulated the teachings of Prophet Muhammad. They believe that he's a prophet, so there you go. You have a movement. You have a religion. Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Christians believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But here's the thing, and it's the disturbing part. If you believe deeply enough in any religious system, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You get enough people believing and looking for things to substantiate their belief and filtering out anything that conflicts with it. You know, every religion has some of those beliefs that, well, they're kind of hard to nail down, kind of hard to know why we believe them, where they come from, but, you know, we just believe that. Everybody has a few of those believe that's. You get a bunch of them together, put a label on it, and you've got a religion. And you'll see answers to prayer because that's what you're looking for. And then when God doesn't answer a prayer, you go, well, maybe you just didn't have enough faith. Or, even worse, maybe you got too much sin in your life. So there's always an excuse. And the reason we have those excuses is maybe we just don't want to change what we believe. So we filter out the information that doesn't support what we believe. And we constantly look for things that affirm what I already believe. So what do we do with that? Maybe, you know, religion's like a Jedi mind trick. Somebody says the same thing over and over. And if they wear a certain uniform, or if they're compelling and they're persuasive... And you get enough naive people together, next thing you know, you have a religion, and maybe that's all religion is. Is it just a bunch of people believing the same thing because they're afraid of death? Or they're afraid of, you fill in the blank? Is that all it is? Or maybe the other option is that you just pick a religion, anyone, and become religious because, you know, religious people... You've seen the studies, religious people live longer, religious people have healthier relationships. So, you know, just pick any religion, it doesn't matter. If you just get in a community of people that believe the same thing, it doesn't really matter what's true. Do we stop believing, or do we hold on to the things that we believe just because we're in that community. So then you have to ask this question. What are we doing here? Richo, what are we doing? Why are you a Christian? Why am I a Jesus follower? And it has everything to do with what we talked about. And I bet if you're a Christian, you've never heard this before. Because, unfortunately, 
we tend to treat Christianity like any other belief system. You know, you get enough people together, teach them a few songs, sing a few ballads, learn a few facts about God, and we'll feel something on Sabbath morning and go, oh, that was the Holy Spirit. That was good. Here's the foundation. And this is why we're here. As you wrestle with faith, as you wrestle with a starting point for faith, this is what's really important. And I don't know if... I've never thought of it like this before. When Jesus died, those closest to him believed he was dead. When Jesus died, the people that knew him best, the people that bring us the story of Jesus later, believed he was dead. After all those parables, after all those miracles, all those cool, snappy answers to the Pharisees, all that stuff, after all of that, he was dead. They believed he was a powerful speaker whose powerful speaking got him crucified. What do you believe about Jesus, Peter? Well, now that he's dead, looking back on it, I guess he was... we warned him. We said, look, dude, don't go to Jerusalem. You're just going to die there. And he said, well, I've got to go. Now he's dead. They believed he wasn't the Messiah when Jesus died. Well, I was hoping he was the Messiah, but I guess obviously he's not. He's dead. Andrew, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you think he's the son of God after spending all that time with him? You saw all this stuff. Well, I know what I hoped was true, but I don't actually think he's the son of God. You know, maybe Jupiter and Mars, the Roman gods, won this time. Yahweh lost. We thought he was the Messiah, but we were wrong. Why do you think that? He's dead. They believed they were in jeopardy, that their lives were in jeopardy. And this is important because unlike any other religious movement, this was different. You know, when Gandhi dies, all the Gandhiites and all the people who believed in Gandhi said, hey, we've got to keep these truths alive. So they all organized, they went around, they grabbed all his teachings, they put it all together, they elevated him, made him a martyr, and you have people following Gandhi. Prophet Muhammad died, probably of old age, and they said, oh, he's dead, but we've got to take the teachings of Islam and the teachings of the Prophet and, you know, make sure they're written and distributed and copied. We've got to keep his teachings alive pretty much true of all martyrs it's true of all religious leaders but it wasn't true of Jesus problem was he said so much about himself he built the whole thing around who he was that when he died he couldn't possibly have been who he claims faith all of them what do you believe well, I don't believe he's the son of God I don't believe he's the Messiah I don't believe much of anything I believed about him before he died. So what are you going to do? Are you going to take the teachings of Jesus and distribute them all over the world? Well, no. Are you kidding? We can't even get out of our own homes. We're outlaws. Besides, who's going to take us seriously? Because everything he said was based on who he claimed to be. And he died. And he can't possibly have been who he claimed to be. It's not possible. That's the end. 
Even his mother, his own mother, the end. We had hoped, we dreamed, we believed, and then the Romans came and the Jewish authorities turned against him. The end. He's dead. Now, don't miss that. The people who knew him best, the people that watched him, the people that brought us the story of Jesus did not believe what many of us believe about him now, and they knew him. Because when he died, they believed he was dead and he would stay that way. This is why I'm a Christian. Because a few days later, a few weeks later, that same group of cowards that ran for the hills when he was arrested, like Peter, hanging outside just to see if Jesus is actually going to be killed or not, waiting to see if it's going to be a miracle like they'd seen him perform many times, and some middle school girl comes along and says, aren't you one of Jesus' guys? Nah, nah, not me. I never knew the guy. And Peter runs, denies even knowing who Jesus was. But a few days later, a few weeks later, these same cowards go into the street of Jerusalem. Not 100 years, not 50 years, not 15 years later, and not some other city, the same very city where these things happened and they began to preach about Jesus. And they don't just preach. There's no evidence to record what they said, as talked about. There was once a man, he had two sons, you know, and his youngest son went off. They didn't tell the story of the prodigal. Though it's a great story. There's no evidence they got up and said, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they'll see God. None of that stuff. They went into the streets and they had four points. You can read it in the New Testament sometime, what Jesus' first followers did and said. But they all had the same sermon, the same message, four key points. You killed him. As in, yep, you, Richo, I see you standing in the front. Yep, you're a coward. You were there. I heard you say, give us Barabbas. You killed him. All you Pharisees hanging out here, wondering where I've been all this time. I know, I'm Peter the coward. I ran off, but I'm back, and I have a message for you. You killed him. God raised him. We've seen him. Say you're sorry. Four-point message. That was it. And do you know why the church survived the first century? Do you know why we're here now? Do you know why we believe why I'm a Christian, maybe why you should be, because you should seriously, seriously consider what Jesus did. Because when he died, nobody believed at all about him. None of them came out as heroes. None of them wrote a late, no, you know what, I believed the whole time. And did that. All the apostles Peter, James, John, Matthew, they were all cowards, they all ran, they all lost faith. And their own testimony about themselves says that. And then they saw something. They didn't believe something, because that's too easy. They saw something. And something happened on the inside of them, and they were changed. And for the first 20, 30, 40 years of the church, the message was exactly the same. 
God has not simply said something through a prophet. There's lots of that. God has done something for the whole world. He raised a man from the dead. We don't simply believe that Jesus taught true things. We believe that something happened. And that is the foundation of our faith. We believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. And then he was raised from the dead. We don't believe that because the Bible says so. That's too easy. Gospels weren't written for a long time. Like 20, 30, 40 years after the event, they started collecting for about 250 years and put together the New Testament. For the first 150, 200 years, thousands and thousands of people became Jesus followers, not because they read the New Testament. There wasn't one to read. It was because eyewitnesses were so extraordinarily convinced of what they saw. The church wasn't launched because of a book. The church was launched because of a resurrected saviour. And the men who ran came back and said, we saw it with our own eyes, take our lives if you want. But we're not dying for what we believe, we're willing to die for what we saw. A resurrected Jesus. And we don't believe it in the 21st century because the Bible says so. We believe it because Matthew, an eyewitness, wrote about it. Mark, who spent time with Peter, wrote about it. Luke, who said, I'm going to investigate these things, put them in chronological order so we don't miss anything. He wrote about it. John, who took care of Jesus' mother, wrote about it. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote about it. Now think of it like this, what would it take, Ethan, I'm going to pick on you, for you to believe that your brother was the son of God? (laughs) Cooper's here today. What's it going to take for you to believe that Cooper is the son of God? A miracle? Yeah. Be pretty hard, right? This whole time, James is there like, "Mm, I don't know. But he shows up and he says, my brother is my saviour and my God. What it would have taken to convince James? And he says, I saw him die. I walked off with my mum, grieving Jesus, hanging on the cross. He died. And three days later, I saw him raised back to life. Peter, who ran like a coward, writes, I believe in the resurrection. The Apostle Paul, who became friends with all of these men and women, wrote in the 50s. Now, that sounds like a really odd year date. 50s, not 2050s, not 1950s, but the actual original 50s AD. He wrote that he believed Jesus rose from the dead based on the eyewitness accounts and based on the testimonies of those who were the closest to Jesus. Men and women who before his death believed none of that. After his death changed so completely. And that's why the fundamental question that we have to wrestle with as we think about our starting point for faith is, who is Jesus? The fundamental question. A single event changed how those closest to him answered that question. Pre-resurrection, who is Jesus? You got answer A. 
post-resurrection, who is Jesus? You got answer B. Completely different answer. But I know teenagers in class very much like that. Where's the evidence? When am I going to ever use this? Particularly mass. How can I trust that the Bible is true about Jesus? How can we trust that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John and Paul just didn't get together and make it up and collude and come up with a really cool story? Let me share a video with you. It goes for a couple of minutes. Um, Some of you may have seen this before. It might answer these very valid questions. My name is Lee Strobel. I'm a professor of Christian thought at Houston Baptist University and the author of more than 20 books about Christianity, including The Case for Christ. Can you help me prove the existence of Jesus Christ? Absolutely, beyond any reasonable doubt. How so? Actually, this court already affirmed it when we were called into session and the date was given. Our calendar has been split between B.C. and A.D. based on the birth of Jesus, which is quite a feat if he never existed. Beyond that, Historian Gary Habermas lists 39 ancient sources for Jesus, from which he enumerates more than 100 reported facts about his life, teachings, crucifixion, and resurrection. In fact, the historical evidence for Jesus' execution is so strong that one of the most famous New Testament scholars in the world, Gerd Ludemann of Germany, said Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. Now, there are very few facts in ancient history that a critical historian like Gerd Ludemann will say is indisputable. One of them is the execution of Jesus Christ. Forgive me, but you're a believer, are you not? A Bible-believing Christian? Guilty as charged. So, wouldn't this tend to inflate your estimate of the probability that Jesus existed? No, because we don't need to inflate it. We can reconstruct the basic facts about Jesus just from non-Christian sources outside the Bible. And Gerd Ludemann is an atheist. In other words, we can prove the existence of Jesus solely by using sources that have absolutely no sympathy toward Christianity. As the agnostic historian Bart Ehrman says, Jesus did exist, whether we like it or not. I put it this way. Denying the existence of Jesus doesn't make him go away. It merely proves that no amount of evidence will convince you. Would you state your name and experience for the record? My name is James Warner Wallace. I'm a retired homicide detective from Los Angeles County. And are you the author of the book, Cold Case Christianity? Yes, I am. Can you share the subtitle of the book with the court, please? A homicide detective investigates the claims of the Gospels. Would I be correct in saying that your your duties as a homicide detective include investigating cold case homicides? Yes, that is and was my expertise. Don't most of those cases get solved with DNA evidence? Objection. Leading. And counsel is testifying again, Your Honor. I'll rephrase. How many of your cold cases were solved through the use of DNA evidence? None. Not one. That's uh, often popular on TV, but our department's never had the good fortune of solving a cold case with DNA. Well, how do most of these cases get solved? often by examining eyewitness claims, uh, witness claims that were made many years earlier, even though often our witnesses are now deceased. Forgive my ignorance, Mr. Wallace, but how is that possible? 
Well, we have a number of techniques that we can use to test the reliability of an eyewitness, including something called forensic statement analysis. That's a discipline where we scrutinize the statements of eyewitnesses and looking at what they choose to minimize, what they choose to emphasize, what they omit altogether, how they expand time or contract time. And when we examine these kinds of eyewitness accounts, we can usually tell who's lying and who's telling the truth and even who the guilty party is. And did you apply this skill set any time outside of your official capacity? Yes, I applied my expertise to the death of Jesus at the hands of the Romans. And I actually looked at the Gospels as I would any other set of forensic statements. Within a matter of months, I determined that the four Gospels, written from different perspectives, contained the eyewitness accounts about the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And did you consider that the four accounts might be part of a conspiracy designed to promote belief in a fledgling faith? Yeah, you have to consider conspiracies when assessing eyewitness accounts. But successful conspiracies typically involve the fewest number of people. It's a lot easier for two people to lie and keep a secret than it is for 20. And that's really the problem with the conspiracy theories related to the apostles in the first century. There are just far too many of them trying to hold this conspiracy for far too long a period of time. And far worse, they're experiencing pressure like no other, unimaginable pressure. Every one of these folks were tortured and died for what they claimed to see, and none of them ever recanted their story. So the idea that um, this is a conspiracy in the first century is just really unreasonable. Instead, what I see in the Gospels is something I call unintended uh, eyewitness support statements. What's an unintended eyewitness support statement? If I can borrow your Bible. Let me uh, go to the Gospel of uh, Matthew for an example of this. I'll start with a passage in which Jesus is in front of uh, Caiaphas at a hearing. It says here, Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Now, that seems like a very simple request, given that the people who hit him are standing right in front of him. What, this makes no sense. What, why would it be prophecy to be able to tell you who hit you? But it's not until you read Luke that you get an answer to this. He says, the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? So now we know why this was a challenge, because Luke tells us the thing that Matthew left out, that he was actually blindfolded at the time this took place. This is very common, this kind of unintentional eyewitness support that fills in a detail that the first witness left out. After years of scrutinizing these gospels, using the template that I used to determine if an eyewitness is reliable, I concluded that the four gospels in this book contain the reliable accounts of the actual words of Jesus. Detective Wallace, I'm not going to try to match biblical knowledge with you. <laughs> but isn't it true that these gospel accounts vary widely in what they say? That there are numerous discrepancies between these accounts? Absolutely. But that's exactly what we should expect. I don't quite understand that. Well, reliable eyewitness accounts always differ slightly in the way they recall the story. They're coming to it from different geographic perspectives, their history, even where they are located in the room. When I examined the Gospels, I wasn't any differences that might be between the accounts. Ah, and as a devout Christian, you feel you succeeded? No, oh, Mr. Kane, I think you misunderstand me. When I began this study, I was a devout atheist. I began examining the Gospels as a committed skeptic, not as a believer. You see, I wasn't raised in a Christian environment, although I do think I have an unusually high regard for the value of evidence. I'm not a Christian because I was raised that way or because I hoped it would satisfy some need or accomplish some goal. I'm simply a Christian because it's evidentially true.
History proves the existence of Jesus. Some of the greatest criminal investigators prove that the disciples didn't collude or make it up. Do you know what that means? It's great news. It means that when we pray, we can believe that God hears our prayers because the resurrected Jesus taught us that when you pray, God hears your private prayers. It means that you can, as Jesus said, who would die for our sins and be raised from the dead to substantiate everything he taught us, said, when you pray, pray our Father. It means you can believe in heaven, not because the Bible says so. It's better than that. It means that because throughout his ministry, Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven and that message died with him, but it was raised with him. It means that when you go through troubled times, you shouldn't be surprised because Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but take courage, take heart. I have overcome the world, which meant nothing as they watched him die on the cross, but it meant everything when they saw him raised from the dead. See, I'm not a Christian because the Bible says so. It's better than that. I'm a Christian because I believe that he rose again. And it's a message for the whole world. That's why there's proof that there was a resurrection. It's why you have to answer the question, who is Jesus? As you wrestle with that question, it ultimately changes you. Now, speaking of questions, I'm going to give you one to wrestle with this week. Did you find any parts of this disturbing? Did you feel like maybe at the beginning I kind of undermined your faith or tried to build it back up, but you're not sure if I actually succeeded or got there or did a good job? Maybe, if so, wrestling with that question is an important part of your faith reset. So I'm going to finish up soon, but I want to tell you about one more thing that happened if you're reconsidering faith. And it's something that we come back to that question, who is Jesus, leads us to something that is so fundamental. And here's what happened. When Jesus was alive, Matthew, the ex-tax collector, and he became Jesus' follower, he tells us this story, Matthew, that one day, Jesus and his guys, the 12 apostles, walked about 150 miles north to a town called Caesarea Philippi. Now, here's what it looks like today. Not a lot to do there, but it used to be a thriving city. And in about 14 AD, this city was actually renamed Caesarea Philippi, because that was the year Caesar Augustus died. So they renamed the city for Caesar Augustus. So Jesus and his apostles, they're walking up to the city. They go into Caesarea Philippi. And you can kind of imagine them having a conversation as they walked. And maybe they're talking about, hey, you know, a few years ago, Jesus, they renamed this city for Caesar. Caesar Augustus was the first real Roman emperor. That's when Rome sort of became an empire and it shifted away from being a republic. And perhaps they talked about the fact that Caesar Augustus was actually an adopted son. Some of you know this from history, maybe, if you're a bit of a history buff and love reading about Julius Caesar like me. Some of you know that when Jesus, uh, Julius Caesar died, they deified him in Rome. They turned him into a god in their culture. So Julius Caesar was this deified God, which meant that Caesar Augustus, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, was actually the son of a God. That's what they referred to him as. So Caesar Augustus, who the city was named after, 
It's kind of like son of a God. So they're walking up to this city, talking about, you know, when Jesus turns to the apostles and he asks a very famous question. He says, okay, guys, we know who Caesar Augustus was, you know, the adopted son of deified Julius Caesar. Who do you think I am? So they had this little conversation about who people think Jesus is. And then towards the end of the conversation, Peter blurts out, I'll tell you who I think you are. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. We pick this up in Matthew 16, where Peter says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. You know, Caesar Augustus was son of, you know, the adopted son of the dead God. You're like the son of the living God, Jesus. You know, he passed away. We don't even know where he's buried, but you're the son of the living God. And Jesus stops and says, bingo, you got it, Peter. In fact, Peter, you're pretty smart, but you're not that smart. God, my father, gave you the answer to that question. And then he says something else that's astounding. In Matthew 16, verse 18, on this rock, I will build my church. The significance of this conversation is that Jesus made a very bold claim he said, I'm going to build my church. Now, as you probably know, Jesus spoke Aramaic. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. So when Matthew sat down to tell us about this conversation, he didn't write it in Aramaic, wrote it in Greek. And the Aramaic word that Jesus used to say, I'm going to build my church, Matthew chose to use a little Greek word called ecclesia. Now, I probably say it wrong because I'm not a Greek scholar. But ecclesia was a very common Greek term. It wasn't a religion. So Jesus made a declaration. He says, guys, I'm going to build my gathering. Now again, picture it. They're 150 miles away from Jerusalem. They're in sort of the middle of nowhere. They're at Caesarea Philippi. 13 of them. And and Jesus says, guys, I'm going to build my gathering, my congregation, my assembly, my people. And they're looking at him and looking around going, what? We're outlaws. What do, you, what do you mean, Jesus? Like, we can't go to Jerusalem right now. There's a reason we can't go back there. And Jesus says, I'm going to build my assembly. And unfortunately, there was a tragedy of translation in our Bibles because the word that was translated when it became English was a German word called church. And that church word actually means house of the Lord. And so we interpret it to mean God said, I'm going to build a building or I'm going to build a church. But he didn't mean that. He made the prediction saying he's going to build his gathering, his people. And Matthew knew that because he was there. And so he used that word ecclesia very deliberately. And so Jesus made his prediction, I'm going to build my church. And as they traveled around, The disciples said, Jesus, don't go back to Jerusalem. Don't go there. And he said, I'm going. He got arrested and he was crucified. And after the crucifixion, Peter and the apostles said, hey, now who do you think Jesus is? Do you still think he's the Messiah? Do you still think he's the son of the living God? Prior to death? (laughs) Nah, we were wrong. Sorry. He died. Do you still think he's going to build his gathering, his people? Hmm. Probably not because, you know, he's dead and he's gone. That can't happen anymore. And yet something changed. Because these very same men that watched him die and ran for their lives, watched Jesus get arrested, were the very same men surrounded by a group of women that had been Jesus' followers, saw him suddenly come back to life. 
And they say, we're back because we've seen a risen saviour. And after Jesus came back from the dead, Jesus, 120 of them, and then he said these famous words in Matthew 28. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, I don't want to be disrespectful, but also, he's standing talking to 120 people and he says, hang on, can I have your attention, please? All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Kind of an arrogant statement. Either it's extraordinarily arrogant or it's true. And perhaps the only reason his audience that day weren't offended by that is because they were looking at a man they had seen crucified. And when you predict your own death and resurrection and pull it off and you say all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, you go, yep, absolutely it has. We've never seen anybody do that before. But he goes on and he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, in light of the fact that all authority has been given to me, in light of the fact that I have all the authority of heaven and earth, I could ask you to do anything or I could do anything. Here's how I want to channel all that authority. Here's how I want to channel all that energy. Here's what I'm going to do with it. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. To what? Yep, here's what I want you to do. And I have the authority to ask you to do it. You know, they are outlaws. They're fugitives. They're running from the authorities that had crucified Jesus. They have no influence. They have no connections. They have no money. What do you want me to do, Jesus? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into all the nations of the world and imagine an apostle put their hand up. What's a nation? Okay, we'll get to that. Uh, I want you to go into all the ethnic groups and I want you to go to all the people groups in the whole world. And another one shoots up. How are we going to get there? Okay, just let me finish. I want you to go into all the nations of the world and I want you to make Jesus followers of all the people from all nations in the world. And then he said, in verse 20, and surely... I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And then he left. I'm with you always, he said. Well, where did he go? He left. I'm with you always. As you go into the world and make disciples of all nations, he left. And they went back to Jerusalem. And a few days later, as we talked about in previous messages, this group of people who had watched Jesus die who had seen a resurrected saviour, had heard him say, go into all the nations, went into the streets of Jerusalem. And the message was simple. You killed him. You were there. God raised him. We've seen him. Say you're sorry. And suddenly the Jesus gathering was born. Suddenly the movement started moving. And the book of Acts tells us that hundreds and eventually thousands of people, not halfway around the world, not a hundred years later, but thousands of people within the city of Jerusalem where these events took place began to say, Jesus raised from the dead. God has done something significant in our midst and the church grew. Could he have imagined how far the movement would spread around the world? Outside Caesarea Philippi, these 12 men Jesus said, I will build my gathering 
in the gates of Hades or hell or death will not overcome it. As we consider a starting point for our faith, we can consider a lot of belief systems. We can consider a lot of truth claims. But at some point along the way, we have to wrestle with two things. A group of people came to Jerusalem and said, we saw a risen saviour. And for the generations that would follow, the Jesus gathering would grow and expand, exactly as Jesus said it would. And in fact, here's the best part. Us as individuals are invited to participate in that. In that activity of God called the Ecclesia. And that's what God's up to in the world through the message of the church, through the interaction of that church within the communities that we're in. And no, the church hasn't always got it right. Yes, the history of the church is filled with all kinds of stories that are embarrassing, but that's the point. In spite of us, in spite of our failure, in spite of our inconsistency, the church continues to influence the world and to grow. And it's not because we're smart. It's not because there's a headquarters somewhere that makes it happen. It's because Jesus said, I will build my gathering. Nothing is going to stop it. For some of you, you might be asking, what is my next step? Well, maybe the next step is to simply come, sit here at Refresh, continue to listen, continue to learn, and continue to contemplate what is in this for me? Who is Jesus? Can I really believe this? Can I really embrace it? Maybe for some of you, the next step is actually, you're at that point. I'm going to place my faith in Jesus, like Luke and Joel. And Ella, today. Maybe for some, the next step is baptism. For others, it's maybe getting to a community of Christians where you can continue to grow in faith. Maybe it's to continue to serve. Wherever you start, ultimately God calls us into his ecclesia and to go out into all nations. Not to convince people of our beliefs, but to share the good news of Jesus of who he is, his death, his resurrection. There's a song that inspires me as I think about this, and I'm wrapping up now. It's called The Invitation, and I'll put the words on the screen, and I want to play it for you as you think about this question, who is Jesus? In the land of mercy, the king looked out from his throne. He saw the sick and the homeless and hungry. He saw me lost and without hope. And moved with compassion, he sent out his only son.
of what he did he died he was resurrected and that's the difference between any other religion and Christianity and he invites us to be part of his gathering his people and that's what you're doing here this morning let's pray father you ask us to call you father because Jesus said so in the gospels and we have enough proof through history that he existed We have proof that the disciples really saw what they saw. And they were so convinced they were willing to die for it. And Lord, this morning, we pray that as we wrestle with these questions of faith in a world that doesn't want to believe, the challenges 
our beliefs daily where a lot of science seems to contradict what the Bible says or what you say about how the world is and how it works, how your kingdom works. Lord, help us to anchor our faith around the fact that you died and you rose again. And that is the starting point for who you are. You said you're the son of God. And Lord, this morning we claim that, we believe that. And as you invite us into your gathering of people that believe in you, We pray that you help us to stand strong in a world that says no. Help us to know that you love us and that you're coming back to restore us and take us to heaven because you said so. We love you and we cannot wait for that. In your name, amen.